Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Daryl, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Could you go ahead and give us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? So my name is Daryl Fairweather. I am the chief economist at Redfin. As the chief economist of Redfin, I study the housing market and I direct our economic research team in coming up with research that is relevant to the housing market, to home buyers, sellers, real estate agents, and basically anybody who is interested in following it. Uh, I speak regularly on topics like housing affordability and um, other housing market topics. And um, before working for Redfin, I worked for Amazon as a senior behavioral economist. Cool. Can you tell us a little bit about exactly what Redfin is and does, and and if possible, contrast it with Zillow? Like most people know Zillow and Redfin and kind of think of them as the same thing. But if you could tell us a little bit about what Redfin is specifically and, and how that all works. Sure. So Redfin, uh, we're most known for probably our website and app, but we also have a full real estate brokerage, a mortgage company, a rental company now, so and also title company. So we really uh, are full service when it comes to finding a place to live. Uh, Zillow is a website as well. They, for the most part, don't have a full staff of agents. Actually, I don't think they have any agents now at all. Uh, they did for a while when they ha- when they were engaged in iBuying, uh, which Redfin does as well, but Zillow shut down their iBuying unit. So Zillow mostly has advertisements for agents who are outside of Zillow. They might work for another real estate agent. And then maybe Zillow has some ancillary businesses, but I'm actually not 100% familiar with everything that they do. <laughs> Cool. So that's really interesting. Um, now, one thing that's very interesting to us, one of the reasons we had you on the pod is you work for Redfin. This is major real estate broker in the United States. And at the same time, you're advocating for fixing the housing crisis, um, advocating for fixing this affordability crisis. I mean, to, to put it kind of bluntly, aren't high prices good for your employer and real estate professionals in general? I mean, is, is no. there more to the story? <laughs> well, tell us all about it. It's not really good for anybody that housing is the way it is in this country. There's a lot of market inefficiencies, things like NIMBYism, um, also just like the way that we tax land and property is not as efficient as it could be, which means that we don't build as many homes as we probably should be um, to meet demand. We underbuild. And you know, even in working for a real estate brokerage, we want people to be able to move, to be able to buy homes. Those are our customers. We want more customers. <laughs> We'd rather have more customers than charge the customers we do have more money. That makes makes a lot of sense. It, you mentioned two interesting things there. Uh, there. There's a couple of things restricting supply and, and kind of driving housing prices up. Uh, NIMBYism and kind of inefficient tax structures. Can you talk about those two separate things and how they contribute to the housing crisis? Sure. So I will start with NIMBYism. NIMBYism is 
and it stands for not in my backyard. Uh, back in like the 1970s, it referred more to things like uh, industrial projects going in a neighborhood. But then it kind of evolved into uh, into residents really being opposed to any kind of development in a neighborhood. So you buy a home in a certain area, maybe all the homes are single family homes. Um, you know, there aren't any shadows in your backyard from taller buildings. You have a view of say the lake, um, no, nothing's blocking it. And then you start lobbying to protect that, to make sure that no large apartment buildings go in that might block your view or cast a shadow, even if it means that housing for everybody else is unaffordable and inaccessible. So it's kind of just basically a shorthand for, I think, being kind of selfish, uh, valuing your property value, your view, um, your neighborhood character that you want more than building a neighborhood that is welcome for all people or for more people to be able to afford and live in. So um, unfortunately, NIMBYism, it's like a consequence of, I think, incentives. Homeowners are incentivized to protect themselves, not to um, think about things more at a larger level. We could address that, I'll pivot into the, with a land value tax. So a land value tax is basically the idea that you, um, you extract the value of the land and redistribute it back to a community because nobody really owns the land, right? I mean, I guess maybe that's debatable, but it's based on the idea that we all collectively um, own the land. And so if you build on a certain pot of land, you should be paying some kind of rent uh, for using that land. Anything you do in terms of the structure would be yours. We wouldn't tax that with a land value tax as opposed to a property tax. Uh, so you can build whatever you want, but the land value has to be shared. Um, and the way that that can actually combat NIMBYism is that you would want to get the most value out of your land by building perhaps more housing on your land um, instead of just letting the land stay as a single family home. And if you didn't want to do that, then you um, would more likely want to move somewhere else where the land value tax was lower, where you wouldn't be impeding on other people's ability to get the full value of the land. So it sounds like there, there's kind of a different incentive structures. So if we tax property, then we'll get less uh, kind of uh, productive uses out of the land. And if we tax the land, we won't, um, we'll get less speculation. Is is that like a fair framing of what you're describing? Yes, I think I think less speculation because the value would be extracted. It wouldn't be something that you would bet on. Um, and I think that that is more equitable just in terms of like how we distribute the value of land. It's not all going to the people who are just around earlier to buy it before the value went up. The value would be more reflective of all the people who contribute to that value. Cause like if you're in a place that has really exclusionary zoning, say San Francisco, for example, and you bought your home, let's say in the 1970s, the value of that land today is mostly attributable to the tech sector and you personally buying a property, like you didn't contribute to that necessarily. So redistributing it back to the whole entire city would make that a bit more fair. Now, Daryl, you're chief economist here at Redfin. So as an economist, what led you to these policy conclusions? You know, what is, what was the theoretical basis for them and how did you personally encounter them? So at Redfin as the, as the chief economist, we, our team, the economist team studies the housing market and our directive is to just inform people on what's really going on. So 
just telling the truth is, is a big part of what we do. We do the research and then we report on it. And we try to report on it as factually as possible. So people know what they're getting into when they buy a home. They understand why values keep going up, why housing affordability keeps getting worse. And you can't really explain that without talking about things like nimbyism or um, property tax structures. These are the root problem. These are the root thing or policy choices that have gotten us into the situation that we're in today. Now you've shared some videos on your Twitter. Um, one one of them you shared was the housing crisis is the everything crisis. Now I've I've heard of this theory before, which is known as also known as the housing theory of everything. Um, and can you explain what this theory is about and and what your thoughts are about it? Yes. So, well, I think there's two parts of it. Part of it is that housing affordability issues cause a whole lot of other problems in the economy. So when housing prices go up, people have to devote more of their income just to housing. They're, on, they're not able to buy other things. They're not able to consume. They're not able to invest in things outside of land, which doesn't like add productive capacity to the economy. It's just land. Uh, and that makes the economy overall less productive than it could be. And it makes us poorer as a society. I think another way to think about the housing theory of everything is that what's wrong with the housing market is really what's like the root cause of what's wrong with the housing market when it comes to things like nimbyism is what could potentially be our downfall with other big crises like climate change, for example. If people have this mentality that they're only going to be concerned about themselves and they're going to block um, policies that could potentially help everyone if we all just you know stop thinking so uh, individually, that's going to prevent us from making investments in, uh, in a carbon-free uh, or neutral future. Um, so I, that, those are two ways I think about how, 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 if you understand what's going on in housing, you can really understand um, how we're failing as an economy and other, and every, in every other aspect. So um, one question I want to follow up on there is that inflation is really bad right now, right? And as an economist, I'm sure you have opinions about inflation. Now, housing inflation, according to your argument here, seems to be kind of a separate sort of thing from like bread inflation, but on the same th- time, like I guess my plumber and a nanny or whatever, any any laborer who has to live in the city has to pay rent in the city. Mm-hmm. And so the cost of that labor is probably affected by some degree by housing affordability. So to what degree is just, and, and then you pay more for a nanny or a plumber. Um, I'm not an economist. I don't know. You please correct me. Uh, to what degree is inflation, um, to what degree is it or is it not driven by the housing crisis? So I'm, I'm going to separate out inflation and stagflation. So inflation, um, the kind of inflation that the Fed has control over is driven by increases in demand for something. And increase in demand for something could cause home prices to go up. It could cause the price of bread to go up. And the root cause of that is that there's too much money flowing around in the economy. There's too much demand. If you just want to reduce that, you increase interest rates, reduce the money supply, demand goes down. Um, The other side of that is stagflation, which is driven by a lack of supply. And the primary reason that housing prices are so high is not because there's too much demand, it's because there's not enough supply. And that's not something that the Fed has any control over. The only way to increase supplies, to increase the productive capacity of our economy, and that's just a fancy way of saying, like, we need to just stop doing things that hurt us for no reason. (laughs) Like having single family zoning is just like a very silly policy choice. We all know we shouldn't have it. If we want to improve housing affordability, let's just get rid of it. Or things like having uh, a carbon tax, for example, um, 
that's kind of a straightforward thing that a lot of economists agree on. If we did that, then we would get a lot closer to uh, a carbon neutral future and we could even redistribute the gains of the taxes so it doesn't hurt um, low income people who tend to consume more carbon relative to their income. So there's a lot of economic solutions that I think most economists agree on that we should just try to figure out a way to do. But I think this goes to my political economy side. I did take a course in political economy at UChicago when I was a grad student. And the main takeaway from that is that we don't get a lot of these policy solutions that seem straightforward because it's just difficult politically to get people to vote in the interest of everyone instead of the instead of their own personal interests. And that can create some like bad policies. I have one real quick thing, Ghost, going back to a word you said. You said stagflation. Could you just define what that is for our audience? So stagflation is an increase in prices that is caused by a reduction in supply. Uh, the, a big example of this was, uh, oh, actually, we can we can point to an example right now. We're experiencing stagflation from uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, we aren't uh, buying oil from Russia, so we have less supply of oil, and that has caused an increase in gas prices. And the Fed, if they try to raise interest rates, it's it's not really going to solve that problem. Um, it will reduce the amount of money in the money supply and people will buy less oil, but they won't like, there still isn't enough oil for what we would want. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. My understanding of the word, I first heard it like referred to from the Carter administration, that traditional macro problem is inflation because economy is growing, but we also have inflation. So good thing and bad thing. And stagflation, I think, is the stag word, is that stagnant? plus inflation, like economy is not growing and you have inflation. So two bads. Is that? Yes. I think that, yeah, I never actually thought about where that portmanteau came from, but that makes a lot of sense. Yes. The economy is not growing. It's not that we have too much demand. Demand is a good thing. You just have to make sure it's not too much. Um, but a reduction in supply is overall bad. And then if you reduce demand, then you're making things worse on top of that. And it's like you're getting punched from both sides um, just to fight inflation. So the point is you can't use your traditional monetary policy lever of pick a point on the trade-off between growth and inflation to solve stagflation. Is that what you're saying? Yes, there is no like um there is the tra- there is no trade-off. Um it's just worse all around. I mean inflation is bad in of itself, so you can't let inflation get too bad because of stagflation either. Um the Fed like they did during um the oil embargo and the issues in the 1980s, they had to they had to raise interest rates then too. So Anyway, this is kind of a tangent. <laughs> Daryl, you mentioned something really interesting earlier around the political economy of um, just general uh, problems around political economy and passing things that would be good for the collective, uh, for, for all of us. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking around NIMBYism. It seems like a real challenge to solve NIMBYism because these decisions are made, zoning decisions are made at the local level. You can go down to your town council, start yelling, I don't want this you know, high-density housing project to go up behind in my backyard for X reason, it might drive my property values down. And there's this concentrated kind of incentive for me to prevent this from happening. And it kind of this, uh, we would all be better off, but it's a smaller incentive for all of us to kind of band together and, and, you know, prevent this person from stopping us from building more high density housing. What can we do to solve that kind of problem? Is it move these kind of zoning decisions up to the state level or the federal level, or is it some other solution? I think that going to the state level is has been effect has been somewhat effective, and that's what California has done. They're still getting a lot of local opposition, but they have been pretty good about um, standing up to that local opposition and really going after municipalities that um, try to evade the zoning laws. I still think that 
it's not a perfect solution to go to the state level because we, you do, I think we do want communities to be on board. And the only way to really achieve that, I think would be like through some kind of PR campaign. We got people to stop littering. People used to litter all the time and now they don't. Now the highways are clean, even though like it's easier to throw your trash out the window. We got people to stop doing it. So I think we could do something like that for NIMBYism. So it's something where we just need to shame people who don't want to build. And if we shame them enough, perhaps we can, we can kind of get there. I don't, I don't want to use shame. I would say like indoctrinate. <laughs> so something more like the YIMBY movements. I mean, we're already starting to see some policy wins come out of the YIMBY movements where they're starting to repeal some blanket single family zoning policies. Is that kind of more along the lines of the campaign you you, you think would be successful? Yeah, I think, I think, I think, if, I think just educating people on the actual, on what's actually happening on why NIMBYism is bad. Um, I think just changing people's hearts <laughs> will be will help even more. I think it's a state level response and changing people's hearts. I don't think the federal government can do a whole lot because, I mean, it would violate the Commerce Clause. I would think to, for them to get directly involved in zoning, they can use carrots and sticks like the, how they do with um, alcohol ages. They like withhold state funding for highways or something like that. They could they could withhold funding for states that don't get their zoning under control. But I, I don't think that that is, is going to work because California is already being punished for having bad zoning. They're losing people to states like Texas and Florida. So if it was just about like, if it was just about residents seeing the error of their ways because they're losing tax revenue, then we are, would already have this problem solved. So Following up on that, on political viability, you know, so so the MB movement seems to be on to something, um, and and hopefully they'll continue to succeed. The other half of your policy proposal is property tax reform, and I've seen some property tax reformers who are also land value tax advocates advocate for what they call a revenue neutral property tax shift. And the idea here is, in if your local appraisal district or property tax district collects a million dollars because that's the budget, then you just assess the value of the land ignore the buildings and collect the same amount of money, but just from the land this time. Um, what do you think of that kind of proposal? Do you think that's something that could be an easier sell? Um, or or have, you, have you ever heard that po- specific policy proposal proposed before? Yes, yes. I think that where I want to learn more is that part of assess the value of the land, because I think there's a lot of hand-waving that goes on at that step. And it's actually, it would be a big burden um, bureaucratically to assess the value of the land. I mean, we already have property taxes. um, So obviously we're like capable of estimating land value or property value. Um, But if that's going to be a major, the major um, way that we, that we solve this problem, I think we're going to have to be pretty careful about how we assess land value and try to think through that. So here's why I think it's hard. Um, Land value isn't fixed. It can change. Things like air quality would affect it, access to jobs, access to parks. Um, It's subjective. You could include non-monetary or uh, non-pecuniary, like dollar value things in it, like how much carbon could potentially be captured if this land was turned into a park. How much do we value carbon then? Like You can go down a lot of rabbit holes uh, when trying to figure out how to assess land value. And not to say it couldn't be done, but I think it's um, a bit more subjective than just some, you know, appraiser, professional appraiser coming in and putting a dollar value on it. It gets it gets kind of complicated. Right. It's interesting because we're actually, um, we're, we're actually somewhat involved in the field. We have a grant right now to do uh, mass appraisal. And so one of the people working on a project is Paul Bedancet, who's worked for the 
International Association of Assessment Officers. And so I've we've been learning a lot about this. Um, one of the things um, he talks about is recent advancements in mass appraisal technology. And um, I, I won't bore you with all the details, but one thing I would like your opinion on is from the position of Redfin, you're sitting on a treasure trove of data for the whole you know, United States. Um, what do you see in the world? Do you have any contact with um, valuation? You say you have an iBuyer program. Um, to what degree is your access to data give y'all insights on um, the potential to do mass appraisal and things like that? So I think that we are, that just the fact that we have all this data and can put up a Redfin estimate can make, um, can make purchases based on these algorithms. It kind of goes to show how far we've come. And I think that it has had a huge impact on the market, but uh, algorithms contain bias. They're not perfect. I mean, Zillow, you know, I don't work for Zillow, but from what I've read, it seems that Zillow um, got caught flat-footed with their iBuyer program because they weren't being as questioning of the outputs of their algorithm as they should be. So it's it's algorithms plus judgment when it comes to valuing a home. It's not just the algorithm. Um, and we have a whole team of agents. So when our customers are looking at their Redfin estimate, their agent is also helping them understand like, here's the context for the estimate and why your home may sell for more or less than that amount or by how much more. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of judgment that goes into it. That's why I'm still a bit skeptical that it can be deployed in a way that is is more if it is efficient in the way that these that that the land value tax enthusiasts um, want it to be, um, and it's also just like bias that no matter how good we get or how much data we get are still going to be there. So racial bias can crop up. There's bias or uh, so Redfin did an analysis of how much a home is worth in a black neighborhood compared to a white neighborhood when the home is exactly the same and the and the neighborhood's exactly the same at least according to all the data that we have and homes in black neighborhoods were valued. I think it was around $40,000 less than homes in white neighborhoods. And you could call that a problem with, with how like an algorithm might determine the price, but it's actually people on the ground who are determining the price and they carry with them their own potential bias for where they want to live. So is that the correct value though, when you're coming up with something like a land value tax, um, and another factor too to be wary of is that even in property taxes, people can dispute their property taxes. And the right. kind of people that dispute their property taxes are tend to be wealthier and have more resources. They tend to be white on average, whereas you know people who maybe don't have the resources um, just end up accepting higher property taxes. So that's a bias that I would be worried about too. But I think the, I think the big question though is is are the, the it's always about trade offs. Can we create a system that is more efficient, that is less biased than the current system? Right. And how, how close do you have to get, mm -hmm. right? You know, I've, I've seen, you can go into San Francisco and you can find an empty lot next to a $3 million home that's worth like 2.5 million, you know, and it seems like the dirt's probably for both of those is probably yeah. worth 2.5 million, you know, um, how, how close do you have to get, you know, I mean, you don't need to do a hundred percent tax on the land rental value, you know, um, What's your margin of error? I mean, you don't have to put a number on it, but just like, can we get put in a policy that's that's good enough, even in the face of imperfect information? I absolutely think that we can do better. <laughs> and uh, there's like a lot of just small ways that we could do better. One is like getting rid of something like Prop 13 that 
caps the increase in your property tax. We could try to value the land instead of the structure and, and not tax the structure. So we're not taxing um, investment. Yeah, I feel like it would like the current system is is very flawed and we could do a lot of improvements. Um, and then another option for municipalities besides land value tax is leasing land more often because it's in effect the same thing. Like instead of mm. um, giving a plot of land away to a developer, you just set a rent and then the city can charge the rent that they feel is appropriate. Um, and they can even take auctions on the rent too. That's another way to assess the value is to just have an auction and let the auction determine it. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've recently seen some talk about what's happening in trailer parks, for instance, you know, and that a lot of the rents on trailer park land is going up. And that, I mean, trailer park land is, is literally a parking lot. I mean, it's a special case. Um, so I wonder if, you know, do, do you have any special insight in what's going on in the trailer park market right now? I am pretty confident that it's a consequence of the housing affordability problem. People have been priced out of um, non-manufactured homes and they have to resort to manufacturing them because, because it's what they can afford. Um, the more inequality increases, the more demand there is for like the most affordable type of housing. So that doesn't surprise me. I'm, I'm really interested in this talk about racial bias and assessments, right? So if we're trying, we're basically trying to do is predict what a home will sell for, you know? And so if all the people who are making offers are, well, frankly, racist, that might reflect, you know, uh, depressed value for this place, you know, if racist people don't want to live here, you know, so, um, but I guess in terms of like policy, which is the worst outcome if, it, if it's like, okay, I valued your property at its low, it's like, well, you pay low taxes. Right. Uh, I've seen some presentations on racial bias where the fancy guy's house who lives on a hill and it's worth $2 million, the property tax, it's like, oh, that land is worth nothing. So he pays like, you know, not very, very little in property taxes. But this person here who lives in the projects, oh, that land's really, really valuable. So they're, they're hit with this very high um, property tax. Um, so, I mean, I was wondering if you could speak to that aspect of things where actually overvaluing your property can be a form of bias. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you, when you're applying for a loan, you want your appraisal to be high. And when you're getting your property tax bill, you want your appraisal to be low. So there, there are different kinds of, um, of appraisals. And unfortunately for black people, they get hit both ways when they're applying for the loan. Um, there's a lot of uh, anecdotes about uh, black people having to like take down pictures of their family, um, have a white person stand in so that they get a higher appraisal when they're applying for a loan. But then when it comes to the property tax bill, on average, black people are hit with higher property taxes relative to um, white homeowners because of what we talked about earlier about um, white homeowners being more likely to appeal their appraisals when it comes to the taxes. Uh, so it, yeah, it can cut both ways. I think a land value tax though has the potential to correct for some of that innate injustice in how homes in black neighborhoods are undervalued because yes, they would get hit with a lower tax bill. And you could even have a negative land value tax, like maybe a place like Flint, Michigan, we should be sending checks to compensate for the way that their land value was diminished due to the lead crisis. Oh, interesting. So like you destroyed land value. So you need to like, it's like a what, what do they call it? A Pigouvian tax when you pay for mm -hmm. something bad you've done. I guess that's what a carbon tax is. Right. Yes. And and um, land value tax has often been paired with what used to be called citizens dividend. It is now called universal basic income. Is that another thing you were gesturing at with like negative land value tax or, or is that a separate concept? I haven't, I hadn't heard UBI linked to land value tax in that way. I consider them separate policies. 
I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, that's just the historical single tax Georgist movement. They often were like, okay, we'll do a land value tax and we'll use it to fund a citizen's dividend. You know, to you take could, some... you could use it to fund all kinds of great things. I guess that's one good option. But <laughs> there's a million options for what you could put the money into. So one thing I'd like to pivot to is this notion of I've heard this policy called value capture, which seems a lot like all the things you're advocating for, just in a specific use case. Like we put in that rail line, you know, downtown, or or you know, you know, we we put in some transit, and the land values go up nearby, but for some reason we can't fund public works and they all go bankrupt and it takes forever. And so some people are saying we should capture the value of those rising land values by building public works. Um, are you familiar with those policies? And do you have any thoughts on those of the, the whole value capture with public goods spending? Well, the context I've heard it in is in inclusionary housing. So if you give a developer the right to build like a luxury condos, a certain number of the units have to be priced below market value. And that is like giving back a public good. I think that they are an imperfect solution, but if that is what is politically viable, then you know it's better than nothing. But I think that a land value tax would be more efficient because when you have that kind of um, mandate of including affordable housing in the condo unit, you may be discouraging a developer from considering the project. Um, but, you know, I guess you could argue that the developers will do it anyway. And if you, if there's, if they are doing it anyway, then I guess that supports that idea. If you, by affordable, you mean rent controlled, right? Yeah. Or below market value. Yeah. I see. Gotcha. Daryl, recently you went on the breakfast club and talked about challenges facing the black community around the history of redlining in the U S can you talk about to what extent and degree this legacy still persists today and kind of the mechanics that perpetuate it? I know you've talked about it a little bit already. Yeah, so redlining was one of the discriminatory um, systemic uh, functions in our housing market uh, before the civil rights movement. So the way redlining worked was that banks would essentially draw lines around Black neighborhoods and would not lend uh, to those neighborhoods. And because of things like racial covenants and mortgages, Black people also could not buy into the white neighborhoods where mortgages were being provided. So it was... In effect, and it in effect prevented um, most Black people from becoming homeowners uh, pre civil rights era. Uh, the work of you know the civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King, the Fair Housing Act, uh, redlining was abolished, but it, the effects still persist today because housing is one of the main ways that people build wealth in this country. It is a source of intergenerational wealth. Uh, people who our homeowners are more likely to have to have had parents who were homeowners. So there's like even just knowledge um, that's passed down or a model that is set when your parents and grandparents were homeowners that black people were prevented from experiencing. And it's one of the reasons that we still have um, inequality today. And it, it's not, it's, it's an example of how the policies of the past and discrimination, segregation of the past is still, is still affecting inequality today. So, Daryl, one question is uh, a big thing that often comes in with the intersection of, you know, race and housing is this topic of of gentrification. You know, people move into the neighborhood and the prices go up, you know, and there's there's tension between the current residents and and the ones just moving in. I was wondering if you could you could talk about that, you know, because sometimes it seems like, I mean, don't we want to improve neighborhoods, but how can we do it without kicking out the people who already live there? Yeah, I don't I'm. I don't love the term gentrification because I feel like it's just used so much that it's kind of lost its meaning. Um, 
I think that what it is actually describing is the vulnerable, vulnerable position that renters are in when land value goes up. Because if everyone all of a sudden wants to move into their area, they don't own the apartment or rental that they're in, they now have to move um, because they can no longer afford to live where they are. And that is a disadvantage that is only really borne by renters and not by homeowners. What's interesting about a land value tax is that that burden would now be shared by both homeowners and renters because the land value tax would go up when more people want to live in the area because the land is more valuable when it's more demanded. So if we're trying to reduce inequality, I think that that is another angle for why a land value tax would help um, the problems of gentrification. I mean, it wouldn't completely eliminate it, but I think it would make it so that the burden is not shared so unequally. So, Daryl, um, you're chief economist at Redfin. Tomorrow I wave a magic wand and you're chief economist of the United States. What do you do? <laughs> uh, I probably would start a commission to investigate a land value tax because uh, that is that wouldn't be a very popular position because people wouldn't know what I'm talking about. But I think that is what I would do. <laughs> cool. Daryl, uh, you're clearly a super smart person. You know, you've worked at Amazon, University of Chicago, PhD in economics, which is an incredible program. Uh, I, I'm curious, it, why spend time on this problem? Why housing? It, it's, is it because it is this like just fundamental thing? It's a huge lever um, or is it something else? So I, um, specialized in behavioral economics when I got my PhD. And I also first started studying economics during the housing crisis. Um, I worked as a research assistant at the Boston Federal Reserve in 2009. And I surveyed homeowners who were facing foreclosure or who had recently entered foreclosure about the roots of why they got in that position. Um, I asked them all kinds of questions about their income, their employment, their health history, uh, things about their knowledge of finance, um, how risk averse they were, how much they understood the terms of their mortgage. It was like a really long survey and I gave it hundreds of times. Um, and it, it really just made me realize like how housing is this huge financial decision that people take and they have no experience going into it. So it's a very um, prime example of where people can make mistakes because whenever you're doing something you've never done before, that's when all the biases start to kick in. Um, and it's a very emotional decision too, because it's your home, it's where you live. And, and in America, homeownership carries so much um, emotional weight for people. So uh, for someone interested in behavioral economics, studying the housing market is, is, uh, is perfect. So, Daryl, one question I have is: um, you got your studies at the Chicago uh, at the University of Chicago. There's this whole school in the non-university sense of economics called the Chicago School, and um, I was wondering, you know, I've, I'm fairly familiar with that school of thought, but this seems like an entirely I don't hear most people talking about land when they talk about economics, at least not until recently. Mostly it's like capital and labor and interest rates and supply and demand. But but like land is is seems seems like a relatively new part of the discourse to me. And I was wondering if you could situate what what makes land special economically. I feel like land was discussed a lot when I was in graduate school um, because it's the perfect example of an inelastically supplied good. When you're when you're going through like what is an elastic good versus inelastic good, land is the prime example. Um, it can't be created; it just exists. Um, so its value is determined um, by demand, not by supply, because supply is fixed. Um, and then housing is another 
it's like an in-between because in the short run, housing is inelastically supplied. There's a fixed amount, but then over the course of a couple of years, you can build, or even maybe one year, you could build another housing unit. So in the longer run, it is more elastically supplied. So housing came up again and again in my studies as examples of how the economy works. Yeah, I, I never got an economics degree, so I don't I don't know what they're <laughs> teaching in schools these days. But but it's interesting to me because like the Chicago School of Economics is very associated to to a lay, ignorant layperson like me with this. Um, what's the guy's name? Um, Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, very libertarian. But I guess he was a land value tax advocate too. Yeah, he understood economics. <laughs> He was one of the best in terms of understanding economics. Maybe I'll, I don't agree with all of his views. I think sometimes he uh, tried to apply economics to things that are more nuanced than that, probably require more of a social sociological or psychological lens, but he definitely understood um, economic principles. Definitely, definitely interesting person. We had his son on a couple of weeks ago on the, on the podcast. Um, I, I'm curious, Daryl, do you mind if I throw out a couple of explanations for the housing crisis and just have you uh, talk to them? There are things we haven't kind of covered so far. Sure. Okay. Uh, so the first one is, you know, corporate investors are just buying up all the homes. What do you think about that? They're not buying them all up. Uh, our, by our estimates, they bought up 18.4% of homes uh, at the end of last year. <laughs> nice. Perfect. That is, can I just say that's so cool that you have that number? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's good. That's good. What about uh, foreign investors? Are foreign investors buying up all our homes? We don't have great data on that because um, most foreign investors buy through like a trust or an LLC or something like that. But anecdotally from our agents, um, it's really only um, comes up in a handful of markets and it's not by any means like the majority. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, I doubt your coding has this specific one in it, but <laughs> I'm just going to ask you anyway, are tech bros buying up all our homes? Okay, this one maybe I don't know. I mean, it's not. Can we be tech bros and sisters? Like, does it have to just be <laughs> so gendered? I'm sure that there are women out there who are buying up homes too. My bad. But it is. It is true that uh, Californians are leaving expensive metros like LA, San Francisco, and are moving to the center of the country, the Sun Belt, um, or just some more affordable inland metros. And they are the ones buying the homes. People moving. And from outside a metro area, um, often have much bigger budgets than the locals. So if it feels like all these outsiders are the ones who are buying the homes, there's some credence to that. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. My, my bad on that one. But uh, inter <laughs> interest rates, is it all just because interest rates, to what degree do interest rates drive housing stuff? Interest rates matter, um, but th it only affects the demand side of the equation. Or Okay. In the short run, it only affects the demand side of the equation. Um the supply side in the short run is fixed. So when interest rates went down in 2020, it did create an excess of demand. I think a lot of that demand was just pulled forward and we're going to see some slow demand for the next year or two to compensate for that strong demand on the last few years. So it, it affects things, but it doesn't really impact the fundamental problem that we haven't built enough homes for everybody who wants to buy them. So some people have said, you know, okay, might, there might be a recession coming. Housing market's starting to cool now that they twiddled with the interest rates. Um, it's a bubble. It's going to burst and everything's going to be okay. Like whether there's a recession that destroys us all, will it at least deflate the housing market or are things going to continue to get worse? Um, if there's a recession so bad that it deflates the housing market, but that's a, that's a very bad recession. So I don't think we should be wishing for that or expecting that or hoping for that. Um the last housing crash was very special because the recession started in the housing market. The problems of uh, 
too loose lending, of securitizing mortgages, creating these complex debt products. And just the general, the real root problem was, was the belief that home prices only go up and don't go down. Um, we are not at that place right now. You know, at most, I would maybe say we're in a 2001 situation where the housing market had been really strong going into 2001. There was a mild recession. The housing market kept going up through it and then kept going up and kept going up and kept going up and kept going up until it, it burst in 2007. So the fact that interest rates are up right now, I think helps us avoid that future because um, we're very far from it right now. Okay. Okay. And so would you say that, um, can, can you make a prediction? It's okay if you can't, that um, prices have been going up pretty steadily. Is it now at least getting worse slower? Uh, so prices spiked in 2020 and 2021. The median sale price is up 15% from last year. Um, and it was up even more, it climbed even more between 2020 and 2021. This next year, we expect home prices to close, or at the end of this year, we expect home prices to close up around 7%, and then for home price growth to slow to around 3% after that. Um, these uh, forecasts are always subject to change as interest rates change and our numbers change, but that's uh, about what we're forecasting right now. Um, so basically, we're expecting home price growth to slow, but to remain up uh, each year. So I'm curious, you mentioned something interesting about 2008. Uh, do you think 2008 is a, a good example of a bubble or is it more like a, you know, market monitors thing where, you know, housing prices have some kind of like random walk and, you know, it wasn't really a bubble. It was actually fairly efficient uh, back in 2000. Because I know you worked on this in 2009, kind of coming out of it, kind of talking to people about what had happened with, you know, in a lot of individual cases. Yes, it was a bubble. Um, the lead up to the housing crash was built on the belief that home prices would not go down. Um, despite the fact that home prices were climbing um, at an unsustainable rate, people kept that belief and it allowed them to make riskier and riskier bets like lending to people who wouldn't be able to afford their mortgage payments and would have to foreclose if home prices went down, um, creating debt products that were built off of those mortgages and then creating um, financial products that were derived from those debt products. It was just a it was just a whole house of cards on top of the idea that home prices would never go down. I think that we're pre still pretty scarred by that experience. And just knowing that home prices could go down has prevented us from getting back into the same situation. Lending standards are much stricter now. Um, although home prices went up quite a bit in the last two years, almost all the loans went to people with excellent credit, with large down payments. Some people, a lot of times people paying even cash. So even if home prices go down, those people aren't going to lose their homes, um, which is why the situation we're in is very different. Right. So what regulatory things have changed since 2008? You, you mentioned a couple, but like, broadly speaking, what what provisions did we change from that? What lessons did we learn? What lessons did we not learn? Um, so the big one I would point to is Fannie and Freddie um, becoming government-sponsored entities and their portfolios being managed by the U.S. government. Like one thing that we did during the pandemic is we um, implemented forbearance. We were able to do that because of that kind of control we had over the housing market. Um, we were able to put extra fees on things like second home mortgages, investor mortgages, um, large um, loan mortgages, which slowed down some of the like exuberance in the housing market without hurting first-time home buyers quite as much. Um, yeah, so 
those two things have kind of shifted the the risk that um, Fannie and Freddie have on themselves. And then I think even just from private markets, private markets have gotten more conservative. It's it's been a problem actually for new construction that builders have lost um, some of their risk taking because they're underbuilding and they really do need some kind of government support to get back to a place that where they're building enough to meet demand. Um, builders tend to follow the cycle, which means they're always a little bit late. They just got, got started and now interest rates are up. So they're already pulling back before they can actually build to meet like the next wave of demand. So it's just an inherent problem there. Um, but lenders have gotten um, more prudent, I think, for the benefit of the health of the housing market. So that reminds me of something, you know, that was another factor we didn't talk about is construction costs, right? Is some people say, well, oh, construction costs are just inflating and that's why housing's out of control. To what degree is that true or not true? Uh, it's, if you talk to builders, it's it's true. They, they have a lot of evidence to point to that. Uh, labor costs are going up. Land costs affect them too, because how are you supposed to hire somebody to build a house in San Francisco? Where are they supposed to live? You have to pay them a certain amount. And if they're commuting in from Sacramento every day, doing a three hour drive, you're gonna have to pay them more money. So you can get into these like cycles of um, despair with rising land costs um, that make it even harder to build. Um, and also her immigration pro- policy plays a role. I know builders would like us, would like the U.S. to um, have immigration policies that allow more foreign workers into the construction industry because they've had trouble recruiting them from um, Americans without that foreign labor supply. Um, that's a, another political topic that is a whole different animal than right. just land value tax. <laughs> well, so it's interesting, you know, so so you you seem to be very focused on these kind of universal get to the root of the problem kind of solutions. You know, there's some, been some other proposals I've heard where it's like, oh, we just need to ban like second home ownership or we just need to ban, we, we just need to like have a, a vacant lot tax or we just need to like um, ban corporate buying of homes and all these things. Um, so regardless of like political viability, um, what do you think of that kind of approach versus the ones you, you, you've just advocated for? I just I just don't have a lot of patience for solutions that aren't going to help. <laughs> I feel like it's distracting. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, like I think I know people it's an easy thing to want there to be some like boogeyman for the problems that we have. But I think a lot of it, like going back to the housing problem, housing problem of everything is that we just like aren't thinking about things in a rational way of what would be best for all of us instead of like this narrow minded view of what's best for us individually in the short run. So that, that, that's a really interesting, interesting take. I really, I really like that. Um, so what is, um, you'd, you'd mentioned before about solutions that are kind of equivalent to land value tax. You, you talked about like a government leasing, you know, in that case, it's like, well, the land value is whoever gets the lease and that's the prevailing market price that lease, I suppose. And then the tax agency just collects that. How, do, how does that work in practice? Uh, so it's, the, and like, if you're just like blindly writing a check, it's the same. It's exactly the land value tax is the same as a lease. You're just paying the government a fixed amount each month. You can call it a tax. You can call it rent. It would be the same. Um, we already kind of do that in effect with property taxes. So I don't think it's like too hard of a pill to swallow. Um, I think if we try to raise them too much, it might face some political backlash because I do think that, especially in America, people like the idea that they that they themselves own the property and not the government. And if you make it too high, maybe people will start to question whether they own it or somebody else does. But um, I think we already do it in small doses. So we could at least try to 
increase the dose. <laughs> Texas does it and they're like the super freedom libertarian state, right? So if they have some of the highest property taxes, I don't see why California isn't doing right higher land value. Yeah, I'm I'm from I'm from Texas actually. And so yeah, I can <laughs> confirm. But what's really interesting is like you talk about like the problem of assessment and like we can do better. Like my property taxes just went up. And um right now we don't have a split rate tax tax policy, like they just tax the whole thing. So it doesn't really matter what the division is. But I looked at my bill and they're like, yeah, your house appreciated in value by this many like thousands of dollars. And I'm like, my house, this giant money pit that is constantly degrading <laughs> in value. And I keep having to put more money into it just to keep it afloat. That's what went up in value. Like, seriously, guys, <laughs> you know, I was wondering, um, just, just like, like a house is a depreciating asset in economics, right? I guess you would classify that as capital. Uh, yes. The actual structure, you mean? Right. Yes. Yeah. And so one of my questions would be, is there, um, you know, I know Singapore has these land leases you're talking about. I've heard that the Empire State Building was actually built on leased land. Do you have any, when, when, when you advocate for some of these things, is there some particularly salient examples you like to point to? Um, or is it, or is it mostly um, just something that you know from economics is a good idea? Um, I mean, my mom used to own a condo that was on a hundred year lease from the city of Austin. So, uh, it was in, it was in downtown Austin, pretty close to the Capitol. So this is something that cities and municipalities use. Um, it can be, it can be safer for them because they might not know the value of the land moving forward. So if they're just charging one upfront free to hand over the land, then they like kind of lose control after that point. So the lease can be helpful and it'd be harder for them to do a property tax politically. Um, yeah, but to your question of like who's done it really well, I'm not sure. I feel like I should look into that a bit more. <laughs> what about, you know, so one thing, if taxes go up, taxes can also go down, but we can also talk about what kind of taxes we have, right? We have property tax, we have sales tax, we have income tax, we have uh, capital gains tax, we have wealth tax, inheritance tax. We got all the taxes you could possibly want. I mean, one political sell could be if land value tax goes up, some of these others come down. Which are your least favorite taxes and why? Um, that's a good question. That's like a, it's like a question on a first date or something, <laughs> which is my least favorite tax. Um, any tax on something that is an investment for somebody of a lower wealth or income status would be like the worst tax. I'm trying to think what that would be. I guess if like, I mean, like a tax on a state on, uh, on capital gains and a savings account or something like that is so silly that we even do that. And if you like get $2 extra, you have to like go report it. Um, I mean, I don't think this is like really the biggest issue in America or anything, but just from like a purely, why are we doing this perspective? Um, anything like that. What about like sales taxes on, you know, some people come often talk about like sales taxes are aggressive because they're mostly born by the poor or whatever. Um, do you agree with that? Are there less worse sales taxes? Um, so sales tax, your uh, sales taxes are, are disproportionately born um, by the poor. There are different kinds of sales tax, like a blanket sales tax, I think would probably be pretty bad. You can have sin taxes, like taxing cigarettes, taxing liquor, taxing sugar, that I could see I could see arguments for, but I could also see arguments against that you don't want the government telling you what you can and can't eat or something like that. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess sales taxes are not great, <laughs> um, but some of them maybe you could justify. Like a luxury tax, maybe you know you tax yachts because what do those rich people need so many yachts for? That's something that people might be down for. There's like taxes serve different purposes. There's taxes for collecting revenue and there's taxes for nudging people to do things that 
you want to do or punishing people for being, you know, too wealthy. So we're getting to the end here. Um, I, we have two big questions we want to ask you um, before we, we see you out is one will be a big wrap up question. Before we do that, I think I see what look like some board games in your background. Oh um, yeah. Is that, is that the case? And what's your favorite board game and why? Um, my favorite board game is uh, Castles of Burgundy. And it's my favorite because I'm good at it. I can beat just about anybody at it. So like, that's my favorite kind. <laughs> um, but uh, it, 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 the game that I like that where I don't care if I lose or not is probably um, Castles of the Mad King Ludwig because you get to build these cool little castles. And even if I lose, I still have fun. Okay, cool. So I guess my last question is, it's like, so there's Yimbies, there's LVT advocates. Um, we we definitely, I'll, I'll just out ourselves. We are, we're definitely oh, in, really? in, in that group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're talking to a pair of ardent Georgists here. You know, we, like mm -hmm. we said before, we're working on an open source land valuation model, right? Um, we, we have a grant from Astral Codex 10 to do it. And um, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what locational factors have the greatest influence on land values. Like where is land value the highest? And, 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 and why, like people talk about like how LVT will ruin farmers, like is, is farmland out in the boonies particularly valuable or is it really all about that urban land? What, what's the deal? I do think it's mostly about urban land. If we're, if we're, if I guess we have to figure out where does value come from is value the market price. If nothing was built on it. Yeah. Let, let's use just the marginalist view of just like what people will pay for. Even, it. even something like Land out in the boonies, one of the reasons it's not valuable is because there's no infrastructure connected to it. Like you would need right. to like lay down the, the plumbing, you need to get internet connection. Um, so I think that in and of itself prevents, presents an interesting problem. Like I, one example is um, I, want, I would point to is South Lake Union. Before mm -hmm. Amazon headquartered in South Lake Union, it was just like a bunch of warehouses. Nobody wanted to live there. And then Amazon moved in, they created all these jobs and the land value went up. So in a world with a land value tax, would you charge Amazon for that? I guess maybe you would have to give them the negative land value tax at first to incentivize them to come in. And then, you know, once they do what they do, then you increase it. But um, I think that George, some, some land value tax advocates hand wave away where land value comes from and how it's endogenous. So that's something that I would uh, be really interested in researching and finding out more about. Okay. So is that kind of like similar to the argument of it's like, okay, this value, this land could have this value, but it's um, oppressed by zoning right now. And so if I can mm -hmm. buy it up and then repeal the zoning, then poof, the value will go up because now you can build this on it. And so the kind of the value goes up. Was that kind of what you were talking about just now? Yeah, it's just that land value is mutable. Like it's uh, sometimes right. a policy choice. Um, sometimes it's based on just the the whims of whoever decides to set up and invest there and and build out um, right. jobs or investments or whatever it may be. Let's do it. Let's do it a little narrowly then. So so forget like Marxist theory of value or marginal theory of value. Just I'm trying to predict the price that this would sell for um, yeah. in the market. You know, assuming we restrict that just to land, right? What factors drive that? Is it is it just like you go near the city center and line go up or or what's the nuance? Uh, I think the if I was to create a function of it, the things I would want to put in my function in my equation would be um, access to jobs, um, access to green space, um, access to transit, environmental factors like air quality, weather, 
um, demographics because like, the people, I mean, the lot of the land value is who lives there, who like you want to move to New York because you want to be around people who live in New York and in the industries that are there. You move to LA to be in the entertainment industry. So um, demographics would be part of it too. Um, that's where I would start. Great. Great. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? Where can people find your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at FairweatherPhD. You can go to the Redfin News site, just Google Redfin News to see all of our research. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn too, but I don't really check LinkedIn that much. <laughs> I should really shout out the Lincoln Land Institute. I just went to a conference of theirs. I talked a lot about land value taxes and land capture. So check them out if you want to learn more about these topics. Awesome. Thank you. Cool. Well, thanks for coming. I think we all learned a lot here. and. Um... I hope everyone follows you and um, reads all your cool research. And uh, we wish you the best at Redfin. Thanks. Good talking to you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.